privilege puts into place this kind of zero-sum game of like, we take away a little bit of your privilege to give to yeah. ours. You know, we yeah. have to reshape the structures of the system right. so that nobody has to play this game of a hierarchy of who's more valuable. That's right. So we're constructing a world that makes yeah. some people's lives feel convenient. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Dr. Maitha Al-Hassan primarily sees her labor as that of a freedom doula and an engaged witness reviving the traditions of the feral femme. She is a historian, journalist, poet, organizer, and mending practitioner. As a journalist, she's worked as an on-air host on Al Jazeera and the Young Turks, also field reporting for such outlets as CNN, Huffington Post, Mike, and Boston Review. In 2017, she received her PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity from USC and gave a TED Talk on her ancestral relationship to Syria. Maitha has co-founded multiple social justice organizations, including the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, the Social Justice Institute at Occidental College, and Believers Bail Out, a Muslim abolition group. Currently, Maitha writes for the Hulu series, Rami, is a visiting professor in peace studies at Chapman University, and offers yoga, meditation, and Reiki workshops, and continues to work on her writing. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I'm here with Maitha Al-Hassan. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast, Maitha. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. We have been wanting to connect for ages now. (laughs) Just the longest time. Absolutely. (laughs) And it's. I feel like it's amazing that we're getting to do so in Ramadan. We're going to be having some really great conversations about Islam and Muslims and Muslims in America and Muslims in the world. And and so I'm excited to to be here with you. Yay. Yay. I'm glad I didn't wear a haram top for that conversation (laughs) because I get get haram police. You get the haram police on you? (laughs) We won't let them in here. We won't let them in here. Muslims come in all types and sizes and varieties. Absolutely. And that's what I am fighting for is for all of us to have our freedom of expression that doesn't infringe on other people's and we can be beautiful and a diverse ummah. Exactly. Exactly. All right, let's start with our opening question, Maitha. Who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned, familial or societal, who've influenced you on your journey? I love that question. I love the podcast because of this framing. I'll give you who I pray to. Mm. So I start and I open up with my maternal grandmother, who transitioned when I was three years old, pretty Uh, young. There are photos with us. But I start by honoring her 
everything I've ever heard about her through all of my family's stories has been a honoring of her angelic nature. And it's not just something that somebody says about somebody because they've transitioned. They have a different story for my grandfather who was married to her. But she appeared like a very, very special person. Not even appeared. I, I try to communicate with her still. And then I honor all of the maternal ancestors that came through her lineage. Mm. And I don't know most of them. I know only a couple generations after. So in prayer, I say her, our original family name. I learned that too, Abul Ez. And then this might surprise folks, or it might not if they're familiar with my work. Then I honor Malcolm X. And today we're recording in the podcast on a very auspicious day. This is the day of his born Earth Day. Yes. Uh, May 19th. It's strange. I've ever since I felt I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I felt a very deep connection. And I have so many stories of how he led me to some of his work that hadn't been made public for mm-hmm. decades since his death. And I even found my maternal family's name in his diaries. So yeah, he apparently had connected with my mom's uncle in Saudi Arabia and he wrote about him and so many more stories, how I found out that that was the case. I mean, it was crazy to be in the archives and to see that and to know that there was a link and there was a connection. Yeah. And then I do a general dua praise of angels ascended spirit guides that I might not know about and ancestors. Mm. So those are the ones that transition that I hold space for. And then ancestors that I turn to now, somebody more recently who I met through this Malcolm X research, Aziz Al-Hibri, who has become pretty big woman in the Islamic world in terms of her research, her study, she organized Malcolm X's speech in Lebanon in, at AUB when he was there. and American an University of Beirut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so at the time, she was pretty atheist. She was the head of the debating society. And then Malcolm X gave her a book about the story of the Prophet, وسلم, and he said to a future Muslim leader, again, at the time, she was forming a friendship and she was quite secular. And she came to the U.S. to get a Ph.D. in philosophy, studied Marx, and at a certain point shifted and started studying Islam, became the first Muslim woman to hold a law professor position in the U.S. And then she was a part of the Third Woman's Alliance and movement. She's forgotten about, I don't know why, we think about other figures like James mm. Sandoval, and clearly we think about Audrey, Audrey Lord who's also an amazing ancestor, but she's somebody, hopefully history will give their due and respect. So I interviewed her. Um, oh, and she started an organization called Karama, which is a group of Muslim women lawyers who work on human rights. Wow. So they are trying to intervene internationally around and in support of and advocating for Muslim women's human rights. But also they're thinking through doctrinal, patriarchal, sort of analysis of our tradition and also trying to break through that as well. 
So I interviewed her for my dissertation, which had a section on Malcolm X. And I asked her like formally to be a mentor. I don't usually do that. Yeah. And she took it on and was so gracious about it. And then I'll add one more person who has been such a amazing, generous mentor. His name is Robin D.G. Kelly. He's a historian of African-American studies. And he's written some stuff about Malcolm. So I guess there's always a thread here. There's always a thread, right? (laughs) He wrote this book called Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. And he's just set the bar for thinking about radical in the sense of like going at the root, not the way that like the counterterrorism world talks about radical. So he set the stage for thinking about radical social movements that have Mm -hmm. dreamed about freedom in the most artistic, avant-garde ways. And he has been such a, a generous mentor ever since I started my PhD program. So Mm. those are some folks. I try to think about elders in my life and to be better also about honoring them. I tend to have a little bit of a rebellious quadruple Aquarian nature. So Mm. I have to sometimes put myself in check. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing all, all of this, you know, because it's, it's always fascinating to me how different people answered this question. But one of the things that I was fascinated about when I was doing my research on you in preparation for our conversation was your really strong affinity to Malcolm X. And it is auspicious that today is his born day. And it's also the 27th day of Ramadan, which is a very auspicious day in in the month of Ramadan. So that's just like, give me tingles when you said that. But it's fascinating because I've watched many of your interviews and read a lot of your work and see this really strong affinity for Malcolm X, the work that he did. And I didn't know the back piece around that he was, he's met like members of your actual family. So I would love to hear about like, how did you come into this relationship? with him and his work yeah. and and what it means for you because it it seems like it really informs the way that you show up in the world. I've seen videos of you talking about Afro-Palestinian solidarity and referencing Malcolm X's work in that as well. I've seen you talk about how as we all know when when he went for the Hajj in Mecca, you know, there's the story of how that shifted him and the way that he was really approaching the work that he did. But what I heard from you is it's not quite the way that it's been told, right? The mainstream yeah. story of how he saw that there were Muslims of all different races and therefore that changed how he was approaching this work. It's not quite the way it went based on unpublished documents, I guess, that you have yeah. Yeah, that you've come to, to research. Tell us about that. This is like one of my favorite things to talk about. I know, I can just I'm see you like- lighting up like... <laughs> He's just up and there I'm, like, speak on it, Matha, speak on it. Let them know. He's like, permission <laughs> is given. Let it happen. I know it's so weird for it to be embodied in a person who has roots in Syria. But my story goes deeper than just Syria. But I just say that for shorthand. But it's strange that a Syrian Muslim woman is feels this kind of deep tie yeah. to somebody who is 
one of the most iconic representations of the Black Freedom Movement. But it will be explained as I tell my story. And I, also I, feel I, free. I really want to hear it. Yeah, because I just <laughs> click in video after video and I'm like, Malcolm X, where did she yeah. get this tie from? When did this relationship begin? How did it begin? What does it mean mm. for her? Yeah. Yeah. I went to a very activisty undergrad, UCLA. And by some estimations, it might even be more activisty than Berkeley. And that's what we think of. We think of the Bay organizers, but there's something that shifted how students showed up. And this is the time of the Iraq war, whether or not we were going to intervene. And I was coming into connecting back with my Arab community culture and history, which was severed up until 9-11 because that was the way that I was trying to figure out how to fit in and right. a pretty white dominant suburb of Los Angeles. Yeah. And so, yeah, I went to school to UCLA at the time. The head of our student programming was a man who was a freedom fighter, South African exile in the U.S. Mm. So he had a hand in really guiding a lot of us towards justice work on campus. I mean, he was fighting apartheid and had to leave to come to the U.S. and he was part of this community of South African freedom fighter exiles. So that that was happening. Iraq war was happening. And then there was a class that a bunch of students who were activists took, and it was called Malcolm X and Black Liberation. Oh my God, I almost forgot. It was taught by a white Jewish man named Wolfenstein. Yeah. And he wrote a book about Malcolm as well. So prior to that, how I got into that class, why I was interested in that class, was that summer I was back home and I was looking for books to read. It's kind of bored. And so my brother gave me The Grapes of Wrath and Malcolm X's autobiography. And I said, which one should I read? And he said, they're very different books. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll read the first 25 pages of both of them and then I'll continue. Yeah. Clearly, I never finished The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> <laughs> because in the first 25 pages of the autobiography, you start out with a firebombing on his house in Omaha and then you're transported to Lansing and the story of what it meant for him to grow up as a black child just grips you and then to me that felt like the first time I actually read the real history of America Mm. it was so different from what I was taught right we always talk about how Slavery is rarely taught, and if it is, it is in the most stigmatizing, shameful way that Black folks and non-Black people of color can't seem to understand or connect with. And then for a generation of people that are descended from immigrants who came after 1965, we have no idea about how integral this civil rights movement was to whatever we were experiencing Mm. in the U.S. at that time. And so he provided that history and he also gave a glimpse into this visceral feeling I had about not being a white person in the U.S. And I I, clearly I don't have the experience of a black man who was raised in the 1920s and 30s in the North during Jim Crow, during segregation. But the way he narrated America's history, I could connect to. Mm And so that gripped me. I took that class and it was like 
I had an opportunity to implement part of my own history and to synthesize what I was learning about the Arab world. And this is also like the early 2000s. We didn't have sophisticated language on really thinking through people of color, Black and Indigenous, right. as sometimes overlapping, sometimes right. dis- discrete categories. Yeah. So we were just on campus trying to figure out ways to connect, but we did, strangely enough, exercise and implement a very intersectional way of connecting with each other. So when the Iraq war happened, or we had discussions about protesting, because mm. it was like almost a year they were trying to prep us, like we need to go in because Saddam's a madman, and he, now he's connected to, to 9-11 terrorists, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So a person who hit the stage when we had one of our protests is the Iranian Iraqi guy. I always talk about him. He was so influential to how I was shifting things. His name is Yusuf. He's a professor now. And he got up on stage. And what was happening at the same time was that there was decreasing enrollment of Black students from like 300 one year to 187 to 90 the next year of a campus of thousands. Wow. And so he made this connection that what happens when we go to war? So this is after affirmative action was aggressively fought against by pretty much white supremacists. We can say that. What happens? It means that there is a drop in enrollment, but also public universities are supposed to be streams or a pipeline from public high schools. And so those folks are the ones that are recruited to go fight on the battlefields. Those folks are the ones that could have had it shot at getting here and their whole lives will be transformed. And in that moment, I saw all those connections. Right. And those are the same ways that Malcolm would speak about race in relationship to a global struggle, what it means to not bring the plight of what he said, 22 million Afro-Americans into the decolonizing global movement. It means that they're going to be continue to be subjected to what he called domestic colonialism. You know, there was all that. So like theory, real life happening. And then I went to Columbia for my master's in sociocultural anthropology to go there to work with Robin D.G. Kelly. And he had just transferred to USC, so I couldn't work with him. And then I realized Manning Marable, who was writing this biography on Malcolm X, was there. Mm. And I wanted to work with him. And he was on sabbatical, too. And so I just emailed him and said, hey, I know you're on sabbatical. I just got here. I'd love to work with you. And so the previous summer, I went there to interview Manny Marable. Sorry, this is kind of a longer this story. Is, yeah, but this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I had written an independent paper for undergrad that was supposed to be 25 pages, turned out to be 75 pages on Malcolm X's influence on politicizing hip hop. And I was like in that phase. Yeah. So, and I thought I was going to make it a book. I interviewed Manny Maribel. I was so gracious to take my interview and it was like a couple hours long. And so I, I said, hey, guess what? I'm back here, but I'm actually going to school. And then he, he had a, one of his research assistants with him during the interview. And he said, you know, I talked to the research assistant. We were both very impressed with how you understood Malcolm. Do you want to come and work on our Malcolm X project as a research assistant? Wow. And I was like, uh, of course. <laughs> and And so at the time I had studied like political science, I was going into anthropology. I didn't think of myself as a historian, but Mm. he is a very well-known, he also transitioned. He's also an ancestor, very, very well-known historian and institution builder. He's the one who built up African-American studies at Columbia. 
Mm. He's the one that gave it an institutional home. He's the one Mm. that could get money. And so a lot of people don't remember him for that. They harp on some of the issues with his biography on Malcolm X. And we can get into that too. But um, he brought me on and he on the ground trained me as a historian. So I would go to the archives at the Schomburg in Harlem. I lived in Harlem. I would step on the street and go to the booksellers, the book vendors on 125th Street, and they would teach me about things that were so different from what I was learning at one of the top five schools in America. In in the Uh, world. Yes, yes, in the world, absolutely. And so I was in anthropology, and then I learned about J.A. Rogers from talking to book vendors on 125th Street. And anthropology might put like Zora Neale Hurston on Mm. like as an image of Columbia that she went there, but she wasn't supported. Mm. And so it was such a, an interesting contrast of like learning from some of the professors there, Manning Marable being one of the big ones and then learning from my environment in New York. Mm. So, you know, I was looking through archives of Arabic language newspapers to find Malcolm and the story of the organization of African unity, which he felt incredibly enamored with. And I found articles he had written in in English and Egyptian newspapers, op-eds when he was there that one summer. But to get to to some of the stories that you had mentioned in the work that I I had researched, I want to give credit to the full research team because we were thinking through these things in a very collaborative way. So Manning Maribel, Zahir Ali, who is an incredible, incredible historian. He was in the most recent documentary, multi-series, docu-series on Malcolm X, who who killed Malcolm X. Mm. And Garrett Felber, who wrote an amazing book on the history of Muslim incarcerated folks protesting. So a lot of amazing scholarship has come out from that team of folks. And we've bonded and we have our own little group thread about like when people share quotes that Malcolm didn't say on, on social media. Oh, I'm sure I must grind your gears, right? <laughs> yeah, we continue to think through these things. So one of the stories that really emerges is the difference between what the autobiography seeks to do mm. and what Malcolm's interviews, his diary entries, say about how he's experiencing, especially the last year of his life. Mm. So Malcolm starts corresponding with Haley, Alex Haley, for the autobiography, 63 or 62. So it's a couple years after he has really gotten into the ministry and being a public speaker. And he's still very much in the nation of Islam world. And he gets the clearance from Elijah Muhammad to do this book because there's clearly tension between him becoming a national spokesperson and people who are jockeying up for Elijah Muhammad's position afterwards. Mm. So there's an inner circle that's watching Malcolm get close. Malcolm becomes such a public figure. Elijah Muhammad knew that Malcolm had such a powerful strength of communicating his messages. Mm. So he allowed for him to do things that he wouldn't have allowed other members, which is Mm. to speak politically, to do interviews with non-Black audiences about the nation because he was conscious of the gays. And also the Nation of Islam had what somebody described as an 
anti-politics, which is they did not want to get politically involved. And part of the issues that they start to have with Malcolm is he's seeing the police brutality that's rampant across the U.S. and he's speaking out. Right, right, right. Even to his members. So anyways, so part of how the autobiography starts is he gets clearance from Elijah Muhammad to do it. And so you see the early part of the autobiography very much aggrandizing Elijah Muhammad, right? Almost after every sentence, he pulled me up from where I was Mm. and he is the true messenger. He is the only reason I am me. And then there's a sharp turn because right before he goes to Mecca, he leaves the nation. And so it's hard to tell who the storytelling comes from Mm. because Haley has an interest in creating a really strong arc. Yeah. Right? Right. And then Malcolm also has an interest in trying to build and create a movement outside of the nation. Right. At this point. So you have to think about this as a historical document that shifts and changes with people's relationship to the material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... What happens is it is a more compelling story to say that in March, Malcolm pulls out of the nation formally, creates his own organization called the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, and then in April goes for Hajj and then sees white people commune with all people of color and eat from the same tray and then come back and say, now I believe or I've transcended this, the constrictions of race consciousness. It's a more compelling story to say that and to also pretend that the global Muslim community is not race conscious. Right, right. (laughs) But Malcolm in his, so a couple of things. So that happens in 1964, April through May is his second trip to the Middle East. We think it's his first because Mm. of how the autobiography is written. Right, right. But it's not his first time, right. There's a tiny, tiny mention page, depending on what edition you have, I think it's like 225 of his trip in 1959 that he goes on. And people are like, what? So he's still part of the nation. Mm. In 1959, he goes at the behest of Elijah Muhammad who wanted to do Umrah. And so there's also a lot of questions about whether or not the nation is part of the fold of how we understand the Ummah or this proto-Islamic heterodox, which people love who are part of the more traditional, conventional Islam, they'd love to put them on the margins. Mm -hmm. But there are some things that they do that are very much like the traditional ummah. Yeah, and for those who are not Muslim who are listening, ummah means... A community of believers, and it's global. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I know what you mean. We we both know what you mean. But for those who are not Muslim... Ummah is the global community of of Muslim believers. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful word because if I'm not mistaken, it stems from mother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To think about how the global motherhood, right? Yeah. Yeah, There's there's a lot of decolonizing that has to do gender wise in Islam, but that's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) That's a a whole (laughs) class. (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely is. (laughs) So he goes in 1959 because Elijah Muhammad wants to do Umrah and he goes to Saudi Arabia and sets it up for him, tries to connect with people who will allow him to go. Because again, if you do not have a Muslim looking name that's on your government documents, then 
you're going to have to prove by through the Islamic courts that you're Muslim right. to be able to do Umrah or Hajj. Yeah. And so he sets things up. And even in 1964, in his diaries, he says, oh, I met some of the same people I had met in 1959. And then it's not entirely clear which countries he went to. Like we can rely on the FBI's documents, <laughs> but they didn't get everything right. And that was also interesting looking at declassified and heavily, heavily redacted FBI and boss files, which is the Bureau of Special Services in New York. So where we do know he went was definitely Egypt and Sudan. Mm. So he went to Sudan in 1959 and he comes back getting into kind of a jousting match in black press with somebody who accused him and Elijah Muhammad of being heretics. And then he says, Actually, this is not the case. And I went to Sudan, and Sudan has some of my most favorite people I've ever met, including my most favorite Sudanese practitioners. That's why later he gets a Sudanese sheikh to come mm-hmm. and be a sheikh at his Muslim Mosque Incorporated. So in 1959, he travels. He sees the quote unquote Middle East and Africa. And he comes back and maybe you could say, you know, he maybe wasn't in a position to see the, the interconnectedness across how we understand what, what colorism is and how people are race. But when he goes back in 1964, you know, he does say that it's amazing to see so many people sharing meals together, but he does observe that birds of a feather flock together. Yeah. So for him throughout his diaries, so I have access to his diaries and a pretty remarkable access because I went in the summer of 2008 when they released the diaries to the public. And at the time, they didn't have shifting regulations like they do now about mm. how much you could copy. So I copied it all. Yeah. Copied all of the microfilm <laughs> because I'm that nerd. I wasn't even in school. I didn't, no one funded it. I funded it. I had already moved from New York back to LA and then I found out that they had opened it out to the public and I booked my first plane ticket and I went there. I spent a whole day just going through the archive. Wow. And yeah, I'm meandering a little bit in the story, but it's, it will piece together. Yeah. So in 2008, so these are how I, I get some of the inside scoops and stories about Malcolm. I'm sitting there, I'm reading and going through the diaries are specifically the diaries on his 1964 travel. So he goes that second time, as I mentioned, April through May. And then that third time for 19 weeks, all across quote unquote, Middle East Mm. and Africa. Mm -hmm. So he's gone for most of 1964 to that region, trying to build with heads of states, which is what gets him into a lot of trouble actually with the U.S. government. So I'm looking through and I'm going in the Saudi section. Little story people don't know is my mom's side of the family has Saudi citizenship. And people ask, how is this the case? Yeah. Well, it's hard (laughs) for those who don't know, it's hard to get Saudi citizenship or Qatari citizenship or Omani citizenship if you're not actually from there, right? Yes. It doesn't matter how long you've lived there, how many generations you've been there, you cannot get the citizenship. Yeah, and you're yeah. you're clearly speaking from knowing this whole story by being rooted in place, and yeah. it's beyond like millions of dollars, right? Um, yeah. Especially Saudi, and so 
my mother's family a couple generations ago was born in Latakia in Syria, which is a coastal city. Mm. But a couple generations before that, I found out they had gone through Egypt and then parts of Saudi Arabia. So they were all over the Middle East. But for this one particular period, my grandfather's uncle was studying on a, under a very well-known Islamic scholar. And the 1930s war against the British in what is at the time was Palestine had been happening. And he went there to fight on the side of Palestinians. Mm. And um, at the time, the king of Saudi Arabia, the first one, Abdelaziz, he formed his cabinet around with bringing people in from different parts of the quote-unquote Middle East. And so he brings my grandfather's uncle in as a foreign minister. And then typical Arab nepotism, he brings in his nephews, his son, to be part of that whole group of folks. Right. So now my mom's side of the family, and it was always interesting to me when I eventually would see them and meet them, they consider themselves Saudi because they all have Saudi passports. Right. So my grandfather comes in and he becomes like a cultural attache and they move around a lot to Turkey, Egypt, Spain, Ghana. He was the cultural attache in Ghana when Malcolm wow. was there. Wow. But the story of what happens is I see my mom's last name in under the Saudi section. Somebody named Nawaf. And I talk about this in the dissertation and I'd never heard of a Nawaf. So I call my mom like after almost falling out of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> because my mom's family has a pretty common uh, last name in the region, but in the context of Saudi Arabia is very specific. Right, right. So I say, do you know of this Nawaf Yassin? My mom has a pretty bad, bad memory. So she couldn't recall the name at the time. And I was like, dang, I thought there was a connection. Fast forward years later, we're in Syria for, this is like the summer before the war starts. Mm. with family and the granddaughter of the guy who was the foreign minister was there and she was like the oral historian of the family and I said hey just off chance do you know who this Noaf Yassin is and she's like yeah he's my uncle and he is your mother's uncle and he <laughs> lives in Lebanon <laughs> wow wow yeah yeah, okay. yeah, yeah 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 so I interviewed him and the thing he remembered the most was how Malcolm looked. It was so fascinating that he, he was in his early 20s. He was the deputy protocol officer. So he was in charge of taking Malcolm all around. And wow. a lot of people talk about how Malcolm was this force when yeah. you met him, right? Yeah. He's this really tall man with reddish hair. Yeah. And he said he, he would never be able to etch out of his memory how Malcolm looked. Mm. So we talked a little bit. And so that's the umbilical cord and in other ways, but that confirmed for me that the synchronicity yeah. was unintentional. Right. Cause it's almost so, like you're following, you're following this thread, right? I mean, thank you for sharing that because you, you started off with sharing about how in reading this book that your, your brother, right, gave you, and you, yes. for the first time, <laughs> you see a story that you see somebody explaining America in a way that you hadn't heard it before, but also an experience of somebody who wasn't white, right, and telling yeah. their story from that perspective. So there's that initial tug, but then there's the threads that you're following that go from this to this to this, but to bring it round to 
somebody in my family. And again, because we started talking about, oh, how can this like Syrian American woman be so passionate about Malcolm X? I mean, she's not black. It is not a part of her history, but it is a part of your history because you found the exact person (laughs) who was alive for you to interview, which I think that's the really fascinating part, that it's not just a name that you can say, okay, maybe they met each other, maybe they didn't. You know, it's somebody that you could actually speak to and they can tell you in their own words what that experience was like for them. It kind of feels like a full circle moment. What did it feel like when you had that full circle moment? Well, so she told me about him at that airport. I mean, at that, it was a wedding that we went to in Damascus. And then I had asked about how to get in contact with him, gave her my email. And then we continued our journey that summer to go see some family in Lebanon. And then we flew out of Jordan. So at the airport, flying out of Jordan, Mm. I'm there logged into Wi-Fi and I get an email from the oral historian of the family and she gives me all his information wow so i'm about to leave (laughs) so i mean the next summer i go and i interview him because i'm about to start or no i had already started my first year at my phd program so for me as you said it was further confirmation that there's a deep connectedness between me and malcolm he and i don't want to overuse this term but he did feel like a spirit guide that i he was guiding me to stories that had not been told about Mm. him and needed somebody to not just tell a snippet of the story, but think about the context. I mean, in my PhD program, I studied race, gender, class. It pretty much is like a PhD in intersectionality. And having that context is so helpful for thinking about the different ways, including the Islamic piece that Malcolm employed an intersectional vision of the work that he was doing. Right. So clearly for him, as I've said, you know, thank you for doing that deep dive research, but that 22 Black Americans were the closest to his heart. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I've tried to start organizations or done work, especially coming from a U.S.-born background, it has been to think about how I can be part of Black freedom, not in like leading it, but in doing my work towards what it means to address anti-Blackness in the Arab community, what it means to bail out folks who are in pretrial detention and make it a Muslim abolition mission. Yeah. So because he's... This is, sorry to cut you off, but I, I think no, this, no is, problem. this is really important because... As somebody who's not, you know, you're not black, you're not in a black body, but in having this very deep relationship to both him and his work, and it informs how you show up in your work as somebody who isn't black, isn't white, but benefits in certain way from skin privilege. Right. I can see in my research of your work that you are very much about blackness as the agenda that frees us all. Yes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And it's not even, you know, sometimes I think this is what I don't jive with, with how socialists think of like vanguard of the movement of like positioning black folks to have to be at the forefront of so much violence. Right. Mm -hmm. But it is, what is the politics of black people historically? And that to me has been 
informative of what it means to end American imperialism, what it means to end racial capitalism. Those systems were formed on the specific oppression and exploitation of Black folks. And also displacement and genocide of Indigenous folks. And especially as somebody who had just been born here and my parents didn't, what does it mean to have a relationship with this place right. that uh, has caused so much pain to people and suffering? Right. right. Because, so were you born in, this? I wanted to ask you about identity, yes. kind of how you yeah. identify, because I identify as a third culture kid, now adult. Yes. So being a third culture kid means you were born and raised in a culture that's not the culture of your parents. My parents are East African, were born and grew up in East Africa, moved to the United Kingdom, which is where they met and married and had me and my siblings. So I'm first generation British, but I always was aware I'm not British like they're British, right? (laughs) I'm not British like white people are British. I'm British in a different way, but I had no connection to who am I? Because I also understood I wasn't black like uh, Caribbean British people are, people of Caribbean descent, right? Because that's also its own history in the United Kingdom. And so I wonder for you as a, were you first generation? Were you born in America or were you, did you come as a young age? And how did you understand your identity at the beginning and how do you understand it now? Yeah, great question. I just thank you also for setting the context. I've been so curious because I've seen your various relationships and yeah. I wondered as well how they informed who you were. Yeah. And I think for me, just like you, and you're in Qatar now. And how long have you been there, by the way? So we moved out here when I was 15 with the goal to only live here for three years. And then we moved back to the UK for me to go back for my degree. And we moved out here originally because partly because my my father was offered a job here. But the reason they accepted was because my grandmother was living in Oman. She'd moved from Tanzania to Oman. She was getting older. My mom wanted us to be closer to her. They also wanted us to live in a Muslim country and finally like have Islam around us and not just be, you know, the odd ones out who are Muslim in the yeah. United Kingdom. So that there was many things that were going on, but it was supposed to be a temporary thing. And it ended up being a, a long-term thing. I live out here. My siblings, they moved back to the UK when they finished their degree. They stayed there. When I finished my degree, I moved back here. And that was also supposed to be temporary. I was like, I'll figure out what I want to do and then I'll go back to the UK. And I just never went back. It, it's important for me to live in a Muslim country. It's important for me yeah. to have my children grow up in a Muslim country. It's different for them because they are British, but they don't understand what that means because they've never lived in the UK. Their cousins live in the UK. They understand themselves British in a different way, <laughs> right? My kids are like, because my husband is also East African, but Irish. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> so I'm East African British. They're like, we're Irish, we're British, we're Zanzibari, we're Kenyan, we're Omani, we're like everything. We don't really know what we are. And I've had to teach them, you are all of those things and you don't yeah. have to apologize for it. You're all of those things. People are just going to have to deal with the fact that all of those things are a part of your identity and a part of your history. Yeah. Yeah. And they resonate at different times or you find out more stories too through connecting with ancestors that are either living or looking for and in the archives of ancestors 
that have transitioned. So I love to give room to that because it's not a static process either. No, no, exactly. So tell me about, tell me about. Oh yeah. Yeah. So when I heard the term third culture kid, I very much resonated with it as well. Because although I was born in a Los Angeles County suburb, born and raised, all my siblings were also born there. I had through both my parents, really different relationships to the world. So my dad came to Los Angeles to go to school in 1968. So this is like, as he narrates it, after MLK was assassinated Mm. a couple months afterwards. And then, you know, one of his first concerts he goes to is Diana Ross. So he has like a kind of interesting transition. He comes from Aleppo. He worked for a couple of years in Lebanon construction to afford to buy a plane ticket to come here. Mm. But he facilitates for all his brothers and sisters to come here to Los Angeles to work with him, Mm. with the exception of his older brother, who was kind of the anchor. And they end up being in business together, but they also end up living on the same exact street. So I grew up on a cul-de-sac with my whole dad's side of the family from Aleppo. So I I would say that I would wake up in Aleppo and go to school in Los Angeles or (laughs) the U.S. Um, And then I'd come back and we'd, you know, take out our plastic chairs and eat our watermelon. People Syrians love to eat watermelon (laughs) after every meal. And when I found out that, like, it was a racist stereotype afterwards, I was just like, what? What Watermelon There's no context (laughs) for you to understand that outside of what you knew in your own culture, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah. And it also becomes a racist thing when, like, white people do that and talk about, like, watermelon eating and all this sort of Mm -hmm. stuff. So that was my dad's side of the family. And so I know people are like, wait, how are you third culture kid in that way? Yeah. So my mom's side of the family, as I mentioned, was from Latakia. But she, my mom was born in Damascus and she never lived in Syria. She mostly grew up in Lebanon. Mm. And so her and her family members had to leave at the start of the civil war in Lebanon. So that's kind of like their home that they eternally want to return to. Mm. And then her family, her parents moved to, the, to France, to the south of France. So she got a degree in the UK. And so every single summer, my mom's side of the family, which was all over the world, like uh, her brother who had his kids in Montreal um, and then eventually like moves around and is now in China and has been living in China for decades. And then another brother who goes between Saudi Arabia and Lebanon and then a sister who lives in Spain and her kids live in the UK and have lived there also for decades. And then some family members that live in Bahrain, some that live in the UAE, we'd all descend onto France and the whole summer to see oh, each wow. other. Okay. So I would never go back to Syria or Lebanon until mm. I was 22 years old. That's the first time I went to both those places. Right. I went to the UAE, in fact, when I was 10 years old, when they had nothing. Right. You know, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Right. Dubai were these, like, had just opened up one mall. Right. Um, <laughs> which is like ancient history. Right. <laughs> and then my dad's best friend who was from Abu Dhabi too. So we grew up around him. So when you spend summers in France and your grandfather only speaks French and Arabic, you have to learn those things to communicate to them. Mm. So all these things are happening. Now I'm growing up in a pretty, as I said, white dominant because When I look back in yearbooks, I see that there are a significant amount of people of color, strangely, but I didn't remember it that way. 
it was because white culture was pervaded. That's we right. had to find we had to find some way to fit into whiteness to feel like we belonged. Right. And so I didn't mm. really. I mean, I'm I'm clearly not black. Right. But I'm also clearly not white. Right. And you have so, a very Arabic name. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. You lived in and a cul-de-sac what? with your Arab family. <laughs> it wasn't right. what and you're right. experiencing when you go home. It's different to what your friends were experiencing when they went home. Right. And for what a lot of people don't know is that Syrians are considered the white Arabs of the Middle East. Mm. And so when I first went back and people asked me where I was from, I was like, I'm you guys, what are you talking about? And um, they would, are you Greek? Are you Persian? Are you Lebanese? Are you whatever other things? Most, as I said, most Syrians, like light skin, light hair, red hair, blue eyes, not me. So I it's was, interesting you say that actually, because as somebody who, so I live in the Middle East, so I see different types of Arabs. And until I did my research on you, I didn't realize you were Syrian American. In my mind, I was like, she's a Lebanese or Egyptian or she's something else. But when I saw Syrian, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> see that yeah. coming. Yeah. And actually what people don't know is Arabs in the U S are classified federally as white. And mm-hmm. that's because of early Syrian migration to the U.S. that Mm. fought to be classified as white so they could be naturalized. But they, out of all the Arab groups, could do that fight much better than everybody else because they passed whatever was called the common man test that could tell, that a common man could tell, or the ocular test that you looked white. Right. So in addition to that, so my dad's side of the family a lot of them married like Germans, Yugoslavians. So I'm really the darkest person on my family. Right. <laughs> in my family. Right. The darkest person in my family. Mm. So I always kind of felt like the odd person out and I didn't fit in school and anybody who was Arab pretty much had my same last name. Mm. And if they were Arab, they didn't want to tell people that they were Arab. They made up that they're from like Turkey or other places. Right. Because in a pre-9-11 world, what people didn't realize is that it was so much harder being Arab than Mm. it was being Muslim. And that sounds strange. Okay, break that down. And especially because I know that there are people who assume all Arabs are Muslim, all Muslims are Arabs, right? So, no. (laughs) (laughs) We hardly constitute a majority in the global community. And also, like, I think as, as you've been saying, which is really fascinating to me, is when you look at Southern Arabia, there's such deep roots in Africa. Yeah. So for us to have Arab as like an ethnicity or a racial category is bizarre, right? right. It doesn't right. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't speak to the migration that was going on right. back and right. forth between like, as you said, Zanzibar and Oman. Yeah. So anyways, what was happening pre-9-11, a lot of people don't remember this in the US, but I remembered it distinctly because it had an impact on how my identity was shaped. So going a a little further back, I was ruthlessly bullied from a young age all the way through high school. And the painful part is that it was kind of a small community. So we were in the same classes with the same people from like first grade all the way up through senior year in high school. So anyways, there were shifts 
that were happening around like multiculturalism, which isn't Mm. something that I really cared for. But before there was a shift around race and ethnicity, there was this interesting move to be tolerant of other religious traditions. Mm. So because of that, Christmas break became holiday break. Yeah. Easter became spring break. Right. And people forgot that we Christianized every single holiday prior to that. Mm. And so part of those ethos were about creating more of an interfaith dialogue on Mm. campuses and honoring different religious traditions. Now, prior to 9-11, the fear around Muslims was heavily around Arab Muslims. But the Muslim part wasn't there so strongly. Yeah, because I think that also that there wasn't an understanding of white Muslims or black Muslims or... Yes, there was a conflation. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It was basically... So there's a couple things that are happening. So the black Muslim community is aggressively targeted through the nation of Islam by the state for sure. Like from the 1940s all the way up until currently, like especially with when Louis Farrakhan takes over the nation. But because there is this conflation of Muslim with Arab, they see the Brown foreign other as the threat. Yeah. And so you start to see this in Hollywood TV and film. Yes, so, I'm so and, glad and, you're bringing. And, and, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I really want to talk about this. It would be a huge disservice if we didn't talk about your huge contribution to this conversation. You have put together this incredible report called Huck and Hollywood, which is about uh, Muslim stereotypes in the media and in pop culture. And it's the first time I've seen it laid out so clearly about the different ways in which Muslims, Arabs, and I mean, it's, they're not the same, <laughs> but, but there are some ways in which it's Muslims, and then there's some ways in which it's Arabs specifically, that there are these tropes and these stereotypes about what we are and, and how we are seen in the white gaze. So I want you to link whatever you were about to say into this report, (laughs) because I really want people to to check out this report. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, I I came through when I was a senior fellow at the Pop Culture Collaborative. And the idea was to track how Muslims were being represented over a 100-year history in TV and film. Because there was a relationship between Hollywood representation, public opinion, and then politics. Politics, right. Yes, yes. So this, I called it this triangulation. You can't tell who starts what, but all of it has an effect on each other. So Mm. whatever the U.S. is doing politically does inform what Hollywood is producing and then has an effect on public opinion. Sometimes it goes in different directions. But for example, when we're talking about a pre-9-11 moment, the U.S. is at war in Iraq the U.S. is at war with Arab hijackers. Mm -hmm. And so you see that in films like True Lies, like all the early I mean, all those 90s movies were about Arab hijackers. I mean... (laughs) All of it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so I portrayed like this history of tropes and traps. And so there's this like really ironic thing that happens, which is that you have the menacing... Arab villain who's also a fool who sets themselves on fire or 
puts themselves in a situation where they get shot by Indiana Jones right? and, and they have a sword or whatever. Right. Like, right. so they're, they're at the same time menacing and a bumbling fool. Mm-hmm. And so this becomes a trope over and over again, or they're added in as unnecessary cameos just to make fun of them. Like mm-hmm. father of the bride, where they just like do these hacking sounds in the back of their throat to right. mimic Arabic. And people are not watching this and saying, this is offensive. This is the limited representation that we have of that community. But the 90s was also very different for a different group of Muslims. And that's Black American Muslims. Yeah. Because they were taking the reins and producing their own projects, you saw a very different representation of Muslims on screen. So Malcolm X comes out in November 1992, a week before Aladdin comes out. So you see the completely different kinds of representations that you have on, about Muslims, but because the means of production are very different, yeah. then one gets closer to what we call the intimate knowledge of a community, and the other one strays very, very far to caricature land. Right. My best friend is... Iraqi and w- one of the things that we always joke about is is Agraba. <laughs> Where is Agraba? Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I I tried to help with some consulting work for the latest Disney live action version. And we said, please just set it in a real time and place. And then right. you can build a story around it. If you start with a fictional place, then people are going to mercilessly critique your orientalism your conflation of different cultures and not realize that if you pick somewhere like oman a couple of centuries ago then you could say that there is a relationship with african folks in the region and it doesn't look weird you don't only have to have will smith right Right. be the magical negro in this story Right. right exactly yes but instead, then they just brought in Bollywood costumes and didn't oh, explain oh, yeah. that at all. Well, I finished it and I messaged my, my best friend and said, I didn't know that we were about to watch a Bollywood movie. <laughs> I didn't know that Agrabah was in India somehow. I, I'm not really sure what's going on. <laughs> I mean, they, they tried to make it so that her mother was from South Asia, but they never explained that. But again, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Disney did what it did with all its live action, make its billions, and they just kept it moving. But right now, you know, in a post-Trump moment, no, we're not post-Tan, but in his... Present. Right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or what what does uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib say? say, The temporary occupant. That's right. So the temporary occupant, after he gets elected, we do have an interesting shift around more of a desire for stories from us about us. Yeah. And we have seen that, right? You consult on the Hulu show Rami. Isn't that right? Which I don't get and to I wrote because it's not here. And I'm like so gutted because I've seen the trailers and I'm like, I want to watch this show. <laughs> what? So I'm doing my Mr. Burns hands because, <laughs> well, a couple of things. One is that, I was a creative advisor consultant on the first season, and then I became a writer for the second season. Amazing. Yeah. And so I was doing these, these little, because maybe we can get you some viewing. Oh, yes. If you want to be in conversation too and think about, like, go really in depth, because we try to think about not always perfect um, 
relationships around race, around how white supremacy informs yes. a lot of that would be our- amazing. Cause I, I mean, I watched the trailer for the first season and I was like, this is so like never in my lifetime have I seen something like this where it's not a stereotype of he's either super like, Oh no, you know, my family is Muslim, but I'm not like, I just go out and do these things, but he's also not like, I'm not little mosque in the, the prairie. Right. And that's, <laughs> and not to say that either one of those descriptors also don't represent Islam, but it was something in which I hadn't seen, which is more the middle line of what my experience would be, what my friends' experiences would be, what my yeah. children's experiences are more likely to be. And that there wasn't the white gaze. There just wasn't. There wasn't yeah. the gaze of this has to be in a way that it makes sense to white people. Yeah. But regardless, people were offended because he did air out some of the dirty laundry about what goes on in I'm, the mosque. Right. <laughs> which we know things to be true and we need a place to have conversation and debate. And I think it's sometimes difficult if there is an asynchronous viewing of stuff like that, you know, before when we would watch things all at the same time, then we can have the conversation together. Right. Yeah. 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 But also for season two, I don't know if you saw, we have Mahershala Ali, who's going to be playing. I love him. (laughs) He's going to be in a good amount of episodes playing a sheikh. Amazing. Which I think it's his first time playing a Muslim character, actually. Yeah. And he, he reached out to Rami to the show because he said, you know, even if the little character, I'd love to be on the show because I never have seen anything like this. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are in the Hollywood world, especially people who are Muslims, see how difficult it is to greenlight anything. Hmm. So a lot of times things get optioned right. and developed or get development deals. But to go from a development deal to getting greenlight for a series yeah, that's a very small funnel that few people make it through. Right, and I think it's incredible to make it through and get through to a second season as well, because a lot of times yeah. these are piloted. It's the first season, and then it's just no, because the majority dominant culture can't relate to it, or it just doesn't make sense to us, you know. So it doesn't continue on. So that's, I mean, that's incredible. But I'm really reflecting back on what you said around that triangulation between what we see in the media, yeah. what we see in. Um, What did you say? So the media, the news. The media itself, politics and public opinion. Yeah, public opinion. Exactly. So when we think about, you know, because I've had the pleasure of interviewing people like Blair Imani, Mona Haider, Mm -hmm. Leah Vernon. And I've something that I've said to each of them is that I'm so glad you exist because back when I was growing Mm -hmm. up, we didn't ever see... Muslim representation of any kind ever at all, especially if you're hijabi, never, ever, ever, ever. And I've said to them, I'm so grateful that you, that you exist, that you're here, that you are fully yourself in the unique way that you are, because you give my daughter options Mm. for how she gets to show up. You are a representation of different ways of showing up in your full humanity so that she knows that however I show up is, is right and true. And I deserve to be here. And so when we, Go back to that triangulation. If we don't have images, if we don't have representation, it influences public opinion, which influences how people get treated in their everyday lives. Yeah. And it also influences political 
decisions, who gets bombed, right? Who gets that's banned, why that gets banned, right? <laughs> right. Who gets right. bombed and banned? And it is like the fact that a majority of Americans said that they would bomb Agrabah is a right. clear indication. Right. Good luck. That. Good luck finding it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's such a great point that you made. And usually when I intro the report, I talk about I show a picture of myself when Aladdin came out. Yeah. And I said, and I remind people that Jasmine, who is an incredibly flawed character and the only speaking female role in Aladdin, yeah. was the only representation I had as right. a kid right. growing up in the US. Right. So I had them really think about that. And, you know, there's this category. And so thank you coming in as a woman, as a mother, mm. and thinking through what it means to have so much diverse representation of one of the most diverse religious groups in the world, the faith right. traditions in the world. Right. So it does an extreme disservice to say there is one way to be Muslim and yeah. to want that perfect Muslim representation. Yeah. We want the flawed. You know, Rami has this great line, not always flawed, but not like one-dimensional <laughs> stereotype. Not the good Muslim, bad Muslim binary. But he has this great line about striving to get the characters on his show to meet at the fault lines. Mm. And then what that means is that when we can connect around our flaws, we can build to be better together, but we can't be honest mm. about who we are if we're not honest about our flaws. Right. And so we can celebrate all those things that striving like his character does for something bigger than him, for something pure, for something higher than. Yeah. And then at the same time fall, because that's the reality of how we experience life. Right. It's the reality of humanity. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to say too, I mean, like, I love that you have different Muslim women on who talk about their experiences and the ways that they're, pushing up against so much patriarchy, pushing up against so much white supremacy to do what they do. Yeah. And they're also pushing up against our own internalized oppression that says, Oh, absolutely. If you're a Muslim, this is how, because it doesn't just come from the outside, right? It's the same yeah, as yeah. when we talk about white supremacy and racism and anti-blackness, it's not just coming from the outside. It's also inside because we're all, in it. We're all touched by it. We're all conditioned into it. And so we see the world through that view as well. And each of the, the people, including yourself, who I interview, each one is always having to contend with people saying, but how can you be Muslim and this? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that doesn't yeah. compute in my mind, right? How can you be this, 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 this? Um, and it's because of that, that triangulation that says these are the limited tropes, the limited stereotypes under which I've been told you are supposed to be. And so you're defying all of that and it completely confuses me and I don't know where to put you. And that is something that I think is, like I said, it plays out from the outside in, but also from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the bind of a lot of Muslim women is that we have to do the work around all sides, right? It's not even a both sides. It's all sides. Yeah, yeah. You know, when Lila Abulagud talks about why do Muslim women need saving, the way that we were positioned by Laura Bush right after 
9-11 to need to be saved mm. by the U.S. from brown men or right. from anybody that was foreign that was a threat to the U.S. from those men. It put us in a really effed up position because we at some point had to defend patriarchy right. <laughs> and to escape a, cer- a certain kind of patriarchy. Right. And need to opt into white feminism as the only way to be empowered as a, as a woman. Yeah. You know, this is why, again, like the black freedom movement is so informative, especially women like Audre Lorde, Tony K. Bambara, who put out this amazing collection, a black woman that had uh, stories and poetry, including like Nikki Giovanni right after the civil rights movement to reflect back on what it meant to not have an intersectional analysis, which means that people were erased. Like the, like Ella Baker was erased. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was silenced by the majority. And so it was interesting because I was having this discussion with a Syrian woman who's part of the resistance in 2011. And I was asking her how things were going. And she's like, I have to deal with all this patriarchy, but we'll deal with that after the revolution. And I was like, no, can't be after mm-hmm. it has to be That's at the part same of it. time right and i gave her i actually gave her that book so that she could see what was going on in terms of what it meant to reflect back on what they wish they would would have had done and the analysis they wish they had available right. and so now she's you know doing a phd and around women and gender studies and is reflecting back in a really beautiful synthetical way about what the revolution could have been yeah, yeah. It's, it has to be all at, at the same yes. time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I want to, this conversation has been incredible and I know, <laughs> I know our time is limited, but there is something that I want to ask you about before I ask our final question. You work in an academic space, something that I know in reading, I think it's the book, Some of Us Are Brave. All the women are white, all the all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. And they talk about, Mm -hmm. there's a section in there that talks about the racism that exists within academia. As somebody who is in (laughs) academia, I know this is something that, you know, we we briefly talked, chatted about. I'd love to hear your experiences, what you observe that's happening in those spaces. Because, and it's, it's oftentimes, and I hear this not just from academia, but from spaces in which people who have white privilege are actually in the work of doing anti-racism, often that can be a huge place of exceptionalism, a place in which they feel like, oh, I already know that. I already read that paper. I studied under that person. I've read their book. I listened to their podcast. And so I'm not really a part of that anymore. I used to be racist. Now I'm anti-racist, which means you can't call me out on it anymore. Or you can't, right? You can't. You can't you point it out this anymore. Up so well, so well. <laughs> right. So tell me from the academic world, what is happening that you have observed? I just like shifted and went into a different <laughs> position when you asked the question. But I'm so glad you asked this because there's very little discussion about this outside of academia, and even in academia, it is small circles of people of color, of women of color, yeah, and I think I mentioned to you that academia, I've operated in so many different fields. Media, I've operated in organizing, yes. organizing yeah, spaces. I've seen Hollywood. you on Al Jazeera's The Stream, The Young Turks, right? You work across many different areas, yes. Yeah, so I think as you 
properly framed or really did an amazing job framing, there's two things happening. The places that think they're doing the best and the service are sometimes the hardest places to shift and change mm-hmm. and around anti-racism. And academia itself is one of the last remaining bastions of white male supremacy and not just the idea that they occupy most of the highest positions in academia and academia is incredibly hierarchical it's such an old school model of industry right you have your phd student who's an apprentice to a senior faculty member so that's ripe with so much abuse of power or potential for abuse of the power dynamics of hierarchy exactly right And then you lay, and this is part of Western male supremacy, you lay over that the emphasis on cerebral processing is the only way you know the world. So Mm. people do not care if your actions follow, if you have praxis, if your theory matches the application of that theory. They just really care about the research and how those words are being Related to the world. Right. And then also because of that ethos, that philosophy of that place and the way it reproduces those old Western ideals, which were necessary for colonialism, which were necessary for enslaving people and genociding them, it privileges that like charismatic male figure Mm. who leads a lecture. And so there is very different expectations of women and women of color in those spaces. So like all of that is a cocktail for marginality, for abuse and for being silenced, especially in those departments that say that they're renegade, that they're revolutionary. But then when you see those places that are either headed by white folks or folks who are people of color that think they have to reproduce whiteness Mm. to maintain that, then it's a whole stream of really toxic behavior and relationships. There's two stats that I think are really fascinating. So apparently graduate students, PhD students, have some of the highest rates of mental health issues out of any profession, like doubles the standard. And then the other one is, I love asking this, how many full professors do you think are women of color in the U.S.? I don't know. Cause I mean, when I was in university, I had one in my whole three years and she was yeah, not black. I've never had a black teacher ever. So wow. <laughs> I mean, the U S is doing a little better than the UK. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Still are <laughs> 10%. I don't know. Two. 2%. Wow. So when you have places wow. like USC, writing reports about how horrible the numbers are for women directors or people of color in Hollywood. Right. Those departments have worse numbers, but people don't shine the light in the other direction. We're just thinking about the report that's shaming Hollywood, which Hollywood deserves some of that for sure. Right, right, right. But we rarely talk about the times up and me too, that needs to happen in academia. Mm. And that is at the heart of why it remains so intractable in reproducing 
yeah. all of those toxic systems. And I am on the fence from a personal perspective on whether or not to continue because I know that my students, especially students of color, as you said, there's something really amazing about role modeling that makes things possible in your imagination. Mm. They get so much and they've told me out of seeing somebody who's a person of color teach them yeah. and then be I mean, a mentor said, and, and guide them. Exactly. I've said this about this school that my, my children go to that is, and I wrote about this in me and white supremacy. It's a very multicultural school, but it's a British school that is multicultural in its student body and extremely white and British in its teaching and, and leadership body. And First of all, it's important for me as a Black mother that my Black children see that people in positions of leadership can look like them, but it's also important for the other kids too. Yes. Right? That's it. <laughs> so that's, that's, why, that's right. part too. Right. It's important for white kids to grow up and not be surprised when a Black person is in a position of leadership and not think, oh, they're like a rare unicorn that got there. Because what I know is that teachers and leadership authority figures should be white right? And so it's important for everybody. So if that's important for my 10-year-old and my five-year-old, I mean, they're going through each year of, of school, right? And then in, if they're going into higher education, never seeing themselves represented, that does something in the mind in how they see themselves, what they're growing into. So they're, we're telling them, you can grow up and be anything, but they're looking around and these formative people in their lives, they're teachers, never look like them. It does yeah. something. But also on that end, which I'd love to remind folks, and you, you already know this, that yeah. when you are bringing people of color to take on positions in historically white industries, the thing that needs to happen too is yeah. you have to create a new support system, that's right. a new structure. That's right. Because you know this. That's and right. Because that's, otherwise that's they, get, they get tokenized, to right? They get tokenized. They get racially aggressed. They're expected to represent everyone of their race. They're expected to always be the one in the publicity photos to prove this is a diverse yeah. Yeah. place, right? We'll trot you out for the photos, but we'll never ask your opinion. We'll never consult you as a leader in this space. And we'll never protect you when something happens to you. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're also not part of a legacy of different kinds of protection. Yeah. So a lot of the white folks that either were my professors or my colleagues had parents who were professors. Mm-hmm. So they knew how this whole jam went. So that was one of my advisors. And so she couldn't properly guide me. I didn't know how to write a dissertation, but she did because her father was a professor. And it's that generational privilege that is often ignored, right? That is often not seen because you are, many of us, I mean, my husband and I were talking about this, that in our families, you know, we're the first to go to university in our families. Our parents don't have that experience. Our kids now will have parents who went to university, right? And we'll be able to explain how to navigate those spaces. But it's not an expectation that we would. And there is an ease in which, you know, the person that you were just referring to is able to move in those spaces and be believed and be seen as credible and all of those things in a way that you wouldn't, you would have to work a lot harder to be compared in the same way. Yeah. 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 And then there's the other level, which I, I know that you've thought through 
written about is thinking about the other demands and labors that people of color have to attend to. So not just representing and just doing the job, but because there are few of us, then we have to be, or not have to be, but we understand our obligation to be mentors. But then we also have an extended family we have to take care of at the same time. Right. So all those things are not thought about when you're bringing in people who historically have been disenfranchised or marginalized from these industries. Mm -hmm. So academia, as we saw the numbers, is one of many that doesn't make that much room and also thinks because they think, (laughs) because their job is thinking. Yes all they have to do to right the wrongs. And so that reparative element, you know, that kind of talk around reparations is not part of the conversation. Right. um, It's if I intellectually get it, right. I intellectually understand what racism is, what the history has been, what has happened, that that's the work. I don't need to embody the practice of amends, of justice, of reparation, because I get it intellectually. Right, right. Right. I mean, there, there are some universities that are, were taken to task and this is all because of student organizing, like Georgetown confronting the slave labor that went into building that institution mm. and thinking about what that means in terms of allowing or shifting their relationship to how to support black students and what it means to uh, have a reparative approach to what happened to build an institution. Yeah. And and for so people, few and far be between. Right. And for people who are listening, just to kind of tie this all together, okay. because the work that I do is, is about, you know, me and white supremacy and calling people who have white privilege into the work, right? In these spaces, in these spaces, we're laying out these dynamics and it's like, so what do I do? And it's like, it's not Matha's job to take on the burden of going up against the institution because if Matha or other professors of color are doing that, there are consequences that will affect your career, that will affect your experience in those places, that will affect what opportunities you don't get anymore because you're speaking up against. And so part of this idea of using your privilege, which I don't really like that term, but just... You know what I use? Yeah. Well, tell me. I love convenience because that's all that is being structured is to make people's lives allegedly convenient right by using dominant power to do so right so how would you say it in that case well it's convenient to not want to look at the histories of racism right and i understand the tension i think that privilege puts into place this kind of zero-sum game of like we take away a little bit of your privilege to give to yeah. ours. You know, we yeah. have to reshape the structures of the system right. so that nobody has to play this game of a hierarchy of who's more valuable. That's right. So we're constructing a world that makes yeah. some people's lives feel convenient, right? Like there are a lot of upper middle class folks in the US right now. And I hate the term lockdown because lockdown is a prison, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're not experiencing prison conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's inconvenient for somebody that wants to go out and party or I want to show people how insignificant this thing is. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Because if you demonstrate how insignificant it is, then we can work together mm. to try to revolutionize or uproot this system. Like, would you be interested in aggressively oppressing somebody for your convenience? Oof. <laughs> right. I mean, I think what's what's a perfect demonstration is do you want to make people more vulnerable, as we've said, now that people realize that cash poor brown and black folks are the ones that are dying the most from coronavirus right. in the US? Now it's about you inconvenienced my life. I want a haircut. Yeah. And now you're infringing on my freedom to do so. Right. But for you, the inconvenience is not being able to get a haircut. But for other folks, that inconvenience is, is death. Death. That's right. Thank you for that. But I really want people who are in academia, who have white privilege, to hear what we have said and who are in other institutions, because this is not yeah. confined to academia. These, these dynamics that we've talked about play out in all institutions. Absolutely. Your job, if you're white or if you hold white privilege, is you have to be the ones to dismantle it. You have to be the ones to yes. convenience yourself right? To put your safety on the line, to put your relationships with other white people. I think Robin D'Angelo calls it breaking with white solidarity, right? Inconvenience yourself in, that, in those ways so that professors of color, people of Black, Indigenous people of color don't have to do so because there's such a more greater risk. Like you said, it's the difference between I can't get a haircut versus this thing is killing me. Yeah. And that framework of, we're not asking you to do John Brown level of like, but even in himself, you know, when my mentor, Robin Kelly reminded me that he and his crew of abolitionists were against Lincoln because Lincoln sanitized the movement around abolition mm. and that he was afraid that people would just accept that and not be willing to be transformed mm. by asking for an abolitionist vision. And so, you know, the, the abolition is just quote unquote disenfranchising, freeing people from slavery. And there was supposed to be a period of reconstruction where there was supposed to be some sort of reparations, mm. but they kowtowed to that white solidarity and allowed the Confederates to win out and have their desires met so that they wouldn't continue to want to secede. So it was a fear of, and that's, that's when the rise of the Ku Klux Klan happened because it was a backlash to black people actually possibly getting some reparations that they never received. So we never returned to that history and said, Oh wow, we did not break with white solidarity, which yeah. I think is an important framing. Yeah. And so how do we undo the centuries of not breaking? Yeah, that's a big question. But I think I want people to study history. Absolutely. <laughs> I want them to understand context, that this is not just happening right now, or it's not just happening because of the temporary occupant, right? It's not just happening because <laughs> of the, the times yes. that we're in, right? There is a contextual, long, centuries-long history and this is a short period and then it's, we're going to be over it. No, this is just a continuation of what it has always been. And so your job now, like when we talk about good ancestor, and that's the question I'm going to ask you in a minute, like what it means to be a good living ancestor right now is what is my job right now? 
in the same way that white people, people who have white privilege in the past, they had a responsibility. Some of them took it on, some yeah. of them did not. Right? It's your job now. You're listening to this podcast. You're listening to these conversations. Don't do that thing that that Matha was saying about intellectually. I get this. Okay, great. Got a great history lesson. Got some great insights. Back to my regular life. Yeah. Get out. Listen, learn, and then walk it out. Right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like it needs to be a song. <laughs> okay, Matha. We have gone way over, but it was worth I'm it. So, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it I was mean, I'm enjoying it. it. I am too. Our final question. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Yeah. There's so much to this question. Okay. In the context of what we were talking about, which is how do you show up? Yeah. I think there are a couple of things. One is to ask, if I'm showing up in a space, who are the most impacted groups of people? And are they present, not just in terms of the optics, but in terms of the leadership positions to be able to make the decisions and to have an informed analysis because their whole lives depend on it. Mm. So intellectualizing things in some cases doesn't bring us closer to the answer. It takes us further away. So as you were saying, the people who embody the experience of how the oppression is affecting them are the greatest wisdom speakers. So they should be at the helm of the decision-making. That's one thing. Two, as part of my dissertation, I came up with this concept that is not so new. It's really taking on the Arabic term shahada, which is active profession. And it is supposed to be the first act in your relationship to Islam. But we can extrapolate from that a beautiful lesson, which is the root of that word is, you know, in Arabic, there are three letters that make up the root and then so many other words come out of it. The root is to tell what the eye beholds. And what that means is when you witness, you must testify. And then another layer to that is that there is a social justice element to this in the Quran and in another part of the root word, which is shaheed, which means martyr, right? You're like, how does martyr and witness, how are those two connected? Well, I theorize that once you, your eyes witness an injustice, a part of you dies. And the only way you can be reborn is in the telling. So. If you understand your life and who you are being staked on telling fearlessly, courageously the injustice you witnessed, and it's not just simply telling and talking and being in that intellectual space, it's putting your life on the line. Yeah. And that's what's yeah. meant by that. So the ancestress, I love that you call yourself that. <laughs> Wisdom is how can we not just put the most impacted in spaces of decision-making, but how can we be their witnesses and testify and create a circle of protection so they can continue to do the work? And of course, those categories go in and out, but yes. recognize. Yes, I love it. I'm like, preach, you are preaching, Maitha. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a beautiful answer and just as a Muslim woman I really love how you tied it to the Quran but I think for anybody 
who is hearing those words, regardless of faith, there's such deep truth there and deep wisdom that is, yeah, just gets to that <laughs> deep place within, right? That, that place that just connects with the heart. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for this incredible conversation. Yes. I love you. You're amazing. <laughs> Can I just add, because I forgot, I completely forgot. That's why I call this, this whole framework engaged withness. So it kind of has like the T included, but it's yes. withness. So when I speak out on your, your behalf, it is, it's mine too. Like I yes. am with you here. And not that I am suffering the same, but I've made a commitment no. to you. And that is one of the ways in which we define the practice of allyship and the practice of anti-racism is to take on the struggle as if it's your own, knowing that it's not your own, but knowing that your freedom is inextricably linked with others' freedom as well. And so it's not their struggle. It's our struggle altogether. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Maitha. Thank you. I love you so much. Love <laughs> everything you're doing, who you are, how you show up, and the conversations that you're having, and the way that you are embodying the wisdom of ancestors. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a good ancestor.